Fun fact. The average number of total items in an American home is 300,000. I repeat, the average amount of items in an apartment or a house in your crib right now is 300,000. And if you can't really wrap your head around this large ass number, hear me out. So a football stadium usually holds about 100,000 people, one football stadium. So we have in America about three football stadiums full of people equals the amount of items, the amount of shit, the amount of clutter that we have in our cribs. Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to season three, episode two on the history of minimalism, packing light with Afro-minimalist Christine Platt. When I say packing light, I'm doing it in Erica Badu's voice like this. In today's episode, we are going to get into how an art form turned into a lifestyle that encourages us to simplify and elevate our lives by just having less shit and having less clutter. So if you're like me and you're kind of sick of your clothes throwing up out of your dresser and trying to crawl out of your closet, along with having too many moments of feeling unorganized, then this one, this episode... This episode is for us. I am so excited about today's topic because I feel like after a year, well, really two plus years of mostly being inside, people are starting to realize just how much stuff we have and how much stuff we've ordered from Amazon and overall just how much stuff that we don't use. Like, do we really need those 10 pair of jeans when we only wear the same three? Do we really need another kitchen appliance when that juicer that we just got off of Amazon is collecting dust over there in the corner? And so even though outside has opened back up after this panorama, this idea of buying stuff and overconsumption is something that people have been talking about and are continuing to talk about and deal with. And today's topic on minimalism is all about getting rid of clutter and living with less as a form of freedom. In the most basic and simplistic way, minimalism, or should I say someone who identifies as a minimalist, is just someone who desires to have fewer material possessions so that they can have freedom. Less stuff means less clutter, less stress, and so on and so forth. (laughs) Now, I know some of y'all are listening to this and think, I am not getting rid of my books. I might be one of those people. Or that dress I only wore that one time, I'm going to wear it again. Or you might be thinking, I'm not getting rid of my sneaker collection. And look, I get it. Don't freak out on me. This episode is not going to try to convert you into throwing all your stuff out and being a minimalist. It's an episode to inspire you to understand what minimalism is and how Afro-minimalism is helping Black folks and other people of color to enter this traditional white space, pun intended. And to take it a step further, there will be some tips, right? Just on how to live with less, if that is something you desire or maybe interested in. But that's all up to you. No pressure. We're just learning over here. In today's episode, I'm joined by Christine Platt, also known as the Afro-Minimalist. She is super dope. And in an interview, she puts us on to Afro-Minimalism. And she also discussed this in her book, which I read, called Afro-Minimalism, The Guide to Living with Less. When I read her book, so many light bulbs went off and my mind was just like blown completely. And it felt like a marriage between the autobiography of our long lost Afro minimalist foremother and a guide to 
backlight. <laughs> Please don't. I know I can't sing. Today's guest, Christine, holds degrees on degrees on degrees. Sis has a BA in Africana Studies, an MA in African American Studies, and a JD in general law. She has written over two dozen literary works for people of all ages. And when she's not writing, Christine spends her time curating the Afro Minimalist, a creative platform chronicling her journey to minimalism. And in today's episode, I'm going to kick us off as I usually do with the first 10 minutes, giving us the history spiel as I always do. We'll do definitions. You know how I feel about definitions, how we feel about definitions. And we're going to learn about the history of how an art form of minimalism became a lifestyle. And we're also going to uncover how minimalism has been around for centuries and was actually inspired by Islamic and Japanese cultures hundreds of years ago. From there, we're going to jump into the interview with Christine, aka the Afro-minimalist, who will tell us the difference between minimalism and Afro-minimalism, drop gems that will help us understand why we have so much shit in the first place and why we get attached to things. She also shares some benefits of living with less. She reads us an excerpt from her book and it's so, so, so good. And then of course she gives us some tips on how to start getting rid of shit if that's what you want to do. So stick around. Let's jump into the history and let's start with definitions. When I looked up minimalist, minimalism in Webster, it says that it's a style or technique as in music, literature, or design that is characterized by extreme spareness and simplicity. Now, when we talk about minimalism and minimalists, I think a lot of stereotypes come to mind. A lot of people think collapsible wardrobes when you just have four or five pieces, or people think of you know, just gurus who just throw away all their belongings, live in these bare white wall homes or live like Kim Kardashian. If you've ever seen her home that looks like a concrete box. (laughs) And so this might be true for some minimalists, but it's certainly not all of them. And most people think minimalism focuses on getting rid of possessions. But in reality, it's a lot more deeper than that. Adopting a minimalist lifestyle means questioning what's really necessary to be happy. Of course, yeah, you sort through some stuff, you do declutter, you try to minimalize your material things. But it's also about just kind of carrying less items, less stress, less pressure, less expectations so that you can get back to ourselves and lead a life, a more fulfilled life. And that's some deep shit right there. I feel like I need to snap to that. When people use the word minimalism, it often refers refers to three things. Either one, a mid-century art movement characterized by the use of simple, clean forms. The second would be a design principle which favors clean composition rather than over-decoration. I'll put that in quotes because I don't even know what over-decoration means. And then lastly, a lifestyle focused on living simply to achieve happiness. Each form of minimalism is a separate movement. However, they do have a key thing in common. It's a reaction against unnecessary excess, aka don't be a bag lady. So where did minimalism begin? The first widespread use of the word minimalism dates back to the 1960s in New York City. It was this new poppin' boundary-pushing art form movement that caught the world's attention, and you actually might be familiar with it. Have you ever seen one of those paintings on a plain white canvas that just has like a square in the middle and the square could just be like black, right? Or have you ever seen just a plain canvas with a line or some patterns across it? Sometimes you see them in museums or galleries. And if you've ever seen one of these in person, you might have thought, hmm, I could have done that. (laughs) Like I have each and every time I've seen one. Yeah, well, what you're looking at, what you were looking at was minimalism. Those paintings and sculptures that feature clean lines, simple geometric shapes, and mostly neutral color palettes is 
the art form of minimalism. This movement was characterized by simplicity, and it was started by a group of artists in New York City in the 60s and 70s, think hippies era, and it was art reduced to the simplest and purest form. In their eyes, art no longer needed to be literal, so no more painting everyday objects or people or scenes, but just simple lines and shapes. According to these artists, art didn't need to have a subject matter. In fact, true art didn't need to represent anything at all. Again, I need to snap my fingers. And so, boom, minimalism was born. Although the movement got its name in New York in the 60s, right, doing these paintings, the idea behind minimalism has been around for hundreds of years and actually can be traced back to Islamic and Japanese cultures. As far back as the 19th century, which is like 1801 to the 1900s, there was geometric patterns in Islamic art. These patterns were a part of the culture to help avoid figurative paintings becoming objects of worship. Islamic artists experimented with lines and stars and all these different patterns, but they were more than just decoration and they were definitely not about simplicity. They were believed to be a bridge into a spiritual realm. As the patterns could carry on forever, geometric forms linked to the concept of infinity and the aftermath. In addition to the geometric patterns in Islamic art, Japanese culture is another example of early proof of minimalism centuries before it hit NYC. For example, Zen, which is a part of Buddhism, encourages the acceptance of simplicity as a means of fulfillment. An article I read stated, for hundreds of years, Japanese art has embraced the use of negative space or ma. Ma is where certain areas of the canvas are intentionally left blank. However, these spaces are not considered to be empty or blank. Instead, they help viewers better understand the pieces as a whole. Simplicity supports understanding. So looking at the Islamic geometric patterns and the Japanese Zen and Ma, we see that artists have pursued simplicity and truth for hundreds of years that go back to the 1800s. The minimalist movement of the 1960s of the hippy-dippy era was just a new take, a remix of sorts to those older ideologies. So that's where minimalism started in terms of art. But where did minimalism lifestyle come from? Now, before we jump into the lifestyle, it's important to note that minimalism lifestyles are not new. A lot of religious texts linked to Buddhism and Christianity encourage the idea of simple living, reducing our possessions, getting rid of our shit, and increasing self-sufficiency. They suggest that simple living helps followers gain spiritual focus. But this idea of living with less also existed outside of religion as well. Some historians credit naturalist and author Henry David Thoreau for talking about minimalism in his book called Walden that came out in 1854. But overall, over time, things started to get mass produced because we had printers and factories, which allowed costs to come down and everyone started accumulating more and more belongings, buying shit in bulk. You know what I'm saying? Better get your toilet paper from Costco's. But (laughs) people had to examine themselves, especially in this like industrial industry when we start seeing this mass printing. People had to ask themselves, were they happy now that they have more stuff? And some people were dissatisfied and they decided to go back to the earlier simple ways of living. In the 1990s, people started talking about things like voluntary simplicity like where you think about like downsizing, where people are voluntary. It's not a situation of not having enough money, but they don't want to have a lot of stuff or they don't feel the need to have all this space because they're not using it. So the voluntary simplicity movement started and it really challenged this needless consumption idea. And another word on the street was this concept of slow living and cutting away excess so life would be more enjoyable. They both emphasize that quality is 
better than quantity. And adjusting an individual's life to have a more deliberate pace was more beneficial. Around this time, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s with the dial-up and AOL and the chat rooms, blogging started to become mainstream and bloggers became the prominent advocates of minimalist living. This whole niche of minimalist bloggers came on the scene, making this medium of simple living popular and popping. And they were just sharing ideas all over the web and different communities were formed. The majority of people in these various communities also developed a lifestyle philosophy of less is more. And so today, minimalism is looked at kind of in three parts. One, having fewer belongings means we feel less overwhelmed, less clutter, brings more peace. Two, minimalizing the damage to the environment. Slower living, slowing down our consumption, we are reducing our impact and our carbon print. And then the third one is with minimalism, we have more time to do things that we love. We have to have we have less choices in terms of what we choose to wear, so it brings down the time of getting ready and so we can focus on the things that we find more important that we love. We have less clutter, so we don't have to go through organizing and also just spending so much time cleaning because there's not that much stuff to clean. <laughs> and so those are kind of like the three fundamental ways that people look at minimalism. And now we're going to jump into the interview with Christine Platt, the Afro-minimalist, who's going to talk to us about Afro-minimalism, which is minimalism in the lens of the African diaspora, acknowledging and celebrating the history, the culture, and the style of us Black folks and other people of color. So we're going to jump into this interview and she's going to explain the difference between minimalism and Afro-minimalism, gives us tips, give us insight, and she even reads a little expert for us. So let's tune into that now. Hi, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you here. I love your book. I have your book right here. I took, I took all <laughs> the notes in my little notebook. I notebooks. love it. Yes, because I just really enjoyed it. And um, I, w- I did an intro before we got on here, but I would love for you to introduce people and let people know who you are and how you began on this journey to Afro-minimalism. Sure. So my name is Christine Platt, also known as the Afro-minimalist, which is so funny because when I started my journey to minimalism five years ago, had I known then what I know now, like my name would probably be like Afro intentionalist or something like that. <laughs> because that word minimalism just evokes so many um, just emotions and thoughts and people that often lead a lot of people to think that they can't pursue or live this lifestyle. Right. And yeah. there's the aesthetics of minimalism. And then there's the practice of minimalism, which is what I talk about in the book. And that is this idea that we can all be more mindful, intentional consumers, right? And so when I started my journey, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I was focused on this minimalist aesthetic. I knew that I needed to have less, right? Like I knew I had too much stuff, Um, (laughs) but I didn't necessarily have an idea in mind about what aesthetically my home would look like other than what I saw online. And so it was only after mirroring uh, that barren, all white (laughs) aesthetic and having it feel just very much not like me, very uncomfortable, um, very sterile. I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to do minimalism my way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then enter the Afro minimalist. So that's how my name ended up being the Afro minimalist. Cause you know, black folks, whenever we want to like claim something, we're like, I'm going to put Afro in front of (laughs) it. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so that's how that came about. And it has just been this magical journey that, um, you know, obviously speaking to my community is very important, but, um, I have met so many other people of, from just, every race and demographic that you can think of all walks of life, you know, turns out a lot of people don't like living in a monochrome (laughs) sterile environment, right? Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. And I love having these conversations and uh, I look forward to 
chatting with you and your audience today. Yes, I love that. I love that you talk about like reimagining minimalism in traditional sense because mm-hmm. the podcast is about reimagining history and how history is taught. Yeah. So we're all about that here. But just to take a few steps back, because some people might not know what minimalism is. Um, mm-hmm. And so we always start with a definition. So how would you define minimalism and how would you define Afro-minimalism? I feel like you touched on it already, but. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. let me start with Afro-minimalism. So Afro-minimalism okay. is basically my version of a minimalist life that's influenced by the African diaspora, right? So my background is in African and African-American studies. I am of the African diaspora. You know, like this, our history and culture and its beauty and richness is not only a part of me, it's a part of my life's work, right? So that is very important to me, having that um, woven into not only my home decor, but, you know, my wardrobe, all of it, right? Um, And so that's Afro-minimalism, a minimalist life influenced by the African diaspora. Minimalism. Mm. (laughs) Now this is different, right? Um, So again, I think there's the aesthetics of minimalism, right? Which is, you know, a lot of people look at images, which by the way, historically minimalism started as an art form I have yes. no idea how it became this <laughs> lifestyle. you know yeah lifestyle aesthetic um but it started as an art form using just very like clean lines simple lines a lot of artists used uh, materials that they already had um and so somehow that word became associated with living with less, right? Um, or or even having this certain aesthetic, like if you have clean lines, they're like, oh, it's minimalist. It's like, actually it's just clean lines. Like, <laughs> we're not, you know what I mean? Or they're like, oh, that's a minimalist desk. And it's like, actually it's just a smaller desk. It's not a, you know what I mean? So there's yeah. that part of it. Um, but then there's also what I like to talk about, which is the practice of minimalism, which is really, making sure that, you know, you are a more mindful consumer, that you only have those things that you need, use, and love, right? When you um, do decide to part with certain things, that you make sure that you're mindful of even how you are, you know, letting go of consumption, (laughs) your own Mm. consumption, right? Making sure that it doesn't end up in a landfill, making sure that it's not taking up extra space at Goodwill, which is, in my opinion, just a pit stop on the way to the landfill, right? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, under understanding the life cycle of your garments, right? Like there's so much that comes into the actual practice of minimalism that I feel is just really lost in mainstream media when it comes to, you know, minimalism as a lifestyle. Yeah. Like when I think about minimalism, I think about like black, white, and gray. <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is monochrome, you know, yeah. aesthetic, right? And it's supposed to evoke all these feelings of calm and simplicity and, you know, all of that. And I think so many people, um, they either look at that monochrome sort of, you know, aesthetic and say, there is no way I could live in a house like that. Or there are people who are like me who mirror it and say, actually hate it I can't be a minimalist right and and I really just want people to make sure that they are making the distinction between the aesthetics of minimalism and the practice of minimalism which are two very very different things yes yes I feel you on that I have so many questions about your book because (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I feel like I I'm I mean only like two maybe yeah two years ago I moved from New York to LA with seven bags of clothes um mm-hmm. and I thought I was doing something big speak in your that truth move. speak your truth <laughs> I thought I was doing something big in that move because I was like okay like right. I'm gonna I got rid of some stuff and I think I just stored some stuff in my mom's house so I was like you know I'll come home for the winter which I do yeah. not want to come home for the winter right, um, would you? <laughs> um and so now I think at this point in my life I like I have a walk-in closet which you know mm. I feel like it makes you feel like you have to fill it, you know? Um, This is the thing. I'm so glad you said that. Let's pause. Let's pause, right? Because (laughs) it's not only our closets, it's wall space, it's bookshelves, it's anything where we see space, there's this idea that it has to be filled with something, right? Mm -hmm. It took me forever to get used to the idea that there was not something on every wall, right? I will tell you this. I finally cleared the top of my refrigerator, which, you know, is like, it's a, culturally, it's like a sh- I, thought, I thought it was a black shelf. person thing. I, know, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it was 
a black person thing till I posted about it on Instagram. And I had all these people, they were like, no, like the top of the refrigerator is an extra shelf, right? Um, but I remember clearing that off and just, I would walk in the kitchen, I'd be like, it just looks so barren, like, you know, because we're so used to things, you know, filling spaces and what we end up doing is just buying a whole bunch of extra stuff to fill spaces, right? And we mm -hmm. fill it and we all like it. Now we got extra stuff and we, you know what I mean? And so that feeling that you're feeling when you, you know, especially when you go from a smaller closet to a larger closet and you walk in and you're like, it's so empty in here. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay for it to be empty. <laughs> I know I need to like so I feel like I um you talked about how you got rid of your drawers and stuff in the book mm -hmm. and I like my like that's my problem it's like I open my drawers and they just like throw up you know it's like uh, clothes folding out and I'm and just like <laughs> and this is why you have to do it your way you know like I remember and I mean I have much love and respect for Marie Kondo I mean I feel like she's one of the you know first people of color to really you know give a different sort of approach to minimalism right yeah um but I remember people just talking about like her folding her folding her folding and I was like that will never work for me because <laughs> <laughs> my drawers I, it's like out of sight out of mind right so I I mean a dresser a, a chest of drawers for me or dresser that's just a storage facility right and I remember going through my wardrobe and there was so much stuff in those dresses and it didn't matter how neatly it was folded. It did none of that mattered. I did not wear it because I could not see it, you mm. know? So this is why like you have to find an approach or maybe even take bits and pieces from different approaches and almost create like your own sort of um, definition and practice of minimalism that is going to work for you. Right. So like mm -hmm. if you, if you don't like folding, if you find, you know, dressers to be a problematic space, then that's part of Marie Kondo's philosophy that you don't need to adapt. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Ooh, yeah. You know, one of the things I talk about is oftentimes, well, I didn't think minimalism would be a lifestyle choice for me was because I would open these magazines, you know, you're like doing these searches, opening a magazine or you're online and it would be like a minimalist farmhouse, right? And you're like, oh, I want to see this minimalist farmhouse. And it's somebody that they have like a 5,000 square foot farmhouse sitting on a cliff overlooking the Atlantic. You know, you're like, oh, that <laughs> what is it? I can't do that, right? <laughs> and so again, this reimagining this for you mm -hmm. in your space, your life right now, what would that look like, right? Like that should always be at the forefront of anyone's mind who is, you know, interested in pursuing a minimalist lifestyle. It's not marrying the images you see online. It's not buying all the things to organize, right? It's like, yeah. how is this a lifestyle that can work for me, right? Mm -hmm. I actually, that's what I like about your book is like how you talk about how you kind of journeyed into making it your own thing. And mm -hmm. I thought, I think before I opened the book, I was like, oh, when I open this book, it's going to be like, bam, this is how you let yeah. things go, right? <laughs> I thought I was going to start out like, all right, I know. do this. But you and I went for the jugular. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You started with mindset and talking about like yeah. why you have so much stuff, why you're so attached to so many things which I think is important. And I think, yeah. you know, when you talk, when you're talking about like how you just start going into magazines and you're online, you're kind mm -hmm. of skipping some steps. And so yeah. I want to know, why did you start with mindset? Like, why do you think mindset oh is, is important in the process mm -hmm. of minimalism? Yeah, because it was such an important part of my journey, right? Mm -hmm. And I hear people all the time, they'll say like, oh, I can't be a minimalist. Or I tried. And I'm like, because you don't know the root causes of your overconsumption, right? And so I thought mm -hmm. it was very important to start with the psychology of ownership, which is something that is rarely talked about, right? Just in general, not even just mm -hmm. in relation to our things or minimalism, um, but understanding why we become attached to things, why we're motivated to have certain things, right? I thought it was very important for people to understand that the biggest lesson in the psychology of ownership for me was touch. I did not 
understand the power of touch, right? And so I would, I love sales racks as I, you know, shared in the book. Mm -hmm. I would go to sales rack. I'd have my little mantra in my mind. It's not a deal if you don't need it. And girl, look up 10 minutes later, I'm walking out. I'm like, how did I get here? And the psychology of ownership is a big part of that. What that is, is this idea that when we touch something or we see something, we establish almost a partial ownership to it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And when you, that partial ownership is established, then it triggers, and this is all psychology. It's not not like something that we can control. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. um, Which I think is important to share. Um, And so what that does is it triggers the desire for full ownership. Now, marketing companies, businesses, advertisers, they are fully aware of how this works, right? And so this is why they're test drive the car, try on the clothes. Why don't you walk around the store in these shoes, right? Because they know if they could just get you to touch it, that that feeling of partial ownership will be locked in and it triggers this desire to have full ownership. I always tell people to think about children Right. Mm. So you want to because, you know, adults, we like I'm like I, I, I have more control than that. Like, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so think about children. Right. And if you've ever walked around the store with a child, you and you you can hand them a roll of toilet paper and be like, you know, just give them something to have something in your hand to just stop touching everything. Right. And by the time you get to that register, and you're like, all right, let's put the toilet paper back. And they're like, no, it's mine. I'm like. How do, what do you mean? <laughs> and they will fall out and cry, right? Because what has been triggered is that desire for partial ownership. And the difference mm. between adults and children is that we have the means and resources to go ahead and buy the thing, right? Yes. Like, no one is making us put the roll of toilet tissue back. We <laughs> will buy it, right? And so I always tell people it's so important to be mindful of touch, right? just as it's important to uh, understand your motivations, like understanding Mm -hmm. why we are motivated to not only um, buy certain things, but also keep certain things, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of people, their motivation for for keeping certain things is because they feel that it's a part of their self-identity. That's a really big motivation for people buying and keeping things, right? So you say like, why do you have your cheerleading uniform from high school? But there's something about that that is a part of their self-identity, a part of, you know, a memory that they want to hold on to, or even touching something may evoke, you know, a certain memory, right? And so understanding your motivations are so important. Um, home is a big motivation, having things that make you feel grounded and secure and safe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that comfort, right? And, and you know, as I share in the book, the problem with using our things, excuse me, for comfort is the fact that our things can be taken from us at any time, Thank right? You. And so it established, what you're doing is establishing this false sense of security, right? With your things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just important for you to understand that your things are, you know, they sure they can be extensions of you, they could be a part of your self identity, all of those things, right? But it's so important to find value not in what you have, but in who you are, right? And this is why I say, this is this is self discovery work, right? This is why the book did not start. I know you want to <laughs> open it up. Okay those garbage bags. This is what you need to do. (laughs) Right. Um, And I love when I get those messages and people are like, I feel like this is a gentle loving drag. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) right. And so I just think it's really important to understand the psychology of ownership um, to get to the root causes of your overconsumption, whether they stem from childhood, whether it's, um, you know, conspicuous consumption, which is another really big uh, thing in our society, I won't even say just in our community, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting to the root causes of your overconsumption is so important um, because unless you understand all those things, I mean, you're just going to end up decluttering time and time and time again because you're going to declutter and you're going to go back out and touch all the things and see all the things and bring them back into your space, right? So that's why I started the book with first understanding, you know, 
a little, little bit more about yourself and your spending habits. Those are my favorite two chapters, like um, why you have more than you need and why you're mm-hmm. attached to them. Because you even talk about like, you know, I think you broke it down into like three or four sections of like, in terms of why you have more than you need. It's like societal yeah. pressure, mm-hmm. keeping up keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses, that conspicuous consumption. Woo. And the pressure of cultural expectations, you yeah. know? And so that, do. yeah, those three like really spoke to me because I think that we overlook how those, you know, there's other, I think there's obviously internal things and you talk about mm-hmm. that, that, and like our childhood and stuff like that, that influence how we um, consume and hold on to things. Yeah. And there's also external things like marketing strategies that yeah. also influence I mean, and, and an impact. And that's the thing, right? Just think of like all of these things working in concert together. Like this is how, you, <laughs> this is how we end up with all the, all the things, right? You have the marketing companies over here. You have your childhood over here. You have societal expectations, cultural expectations. It's just a lot. And so it's important, I think, to just pause and like really hone in on what those, you know, challenges are for you before you begin um, this process of of letting go. Yes. Another thing that I love about your book is how you in particularly talk to like Black folks and other marginalized groups. (laughs) Um, You know, you give us statistics about debt. um, You give us statistics. You know, you talk about, you talk, you speak to the different things that like black folks or, you know, culturally mm-hmm. that we are like taught or thought yeah. that we need to have. And I love those little, you have like these black sections in your book that are yes, like- Yes, those pages so for, those the yeah, those yes, for the culture. Yeah, those for the culture. Can you tell me about how you kind of, like, why did you think it was significant to kind of have those pages carved out for us and maybe like one of your favorite or most speaking or telling- thing of one in that section that you feel like is important that we should know yeah I thought it was so important uh, I mean obviously as a historian knowing our history and knowing some of the challenges um, that we face in particular with consumerism um, but I also thought it was particularly important um, because this is a this is like a demographic that is consistently left out of the the minimalist conversation, the wellness space, right? Like we are never, our lived experiences are never considered or shared uh, when it comes to this work. And so I thought it was very important for me to speak directly to my community. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that the pages ended up being as beautiful as they are. Like I think it's, you know, and you're a writer, you never know what you're going to end up with. (laughs) <laughs> uh, when when the book is printed, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it is, it's definitely, um, it's just one of my favorite, you know, favorite parts of the book. Page eight. <laughs> <laughs> so that for the culture reads uh, for your listeners here. Mm-hmm. Ownership is an especially complicated matter for people of the African diaspora. From our ancestors being stolen and once owned as property to our need to have things so that we feel in control of something in our lives. Black people have a different, deeper relationship with our belongings. Additionally, our communities are still grappling with generational implications and inequities resulting from slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, and other state-sanctioned limitations on ownership. Without a doubt, our familial and collective histories continue to influence why we are so attached to our things. Black people and other marginalized groups must understand the powerful connection between the psychology of ownership and the false sense of security it often provides. Our desire to seek comfort in things is heightened when we live in a society where we constantly feel unsafe, at risk. Take special note of areas in your life where your attachments to and unwillingness to let go of certain things may be rooted less in the culture of consumerism and more in the culture of white supremacy. Although making such acknowledgements can be difficult and even painful, this work is necessary, not only for your minimalist practice, but also for your survival and that of our communities. If our resources are used to purchase things for comfort instead of building generational wealth, we run the risk of not only remaining victims of systemic oppression, but even worse, contributing to it. Mm, I got a snack on that one. Yeah. <laughs> right? And like, 
So I feel like it's so important to touch on those areas, right? I remember um, last summer with the murder of George Floyd, um, just being like very vocal on social media, telling folks like, black folks don't, this is not the time to go to the mall. This is like, don't go looking online, right? Because you're immediately wanting to have control of something. You wanna seek comfort in something, right? Because everything just seems to be so out of control, which is very much, you know, just the culture of white supremacy that we live in, right? And so, and there's so many things, that's just one aspect of it, right? You know, I feel like societal expectations and keeping up with the Joneses, like all of that is also rooted in this, you know, culture of white Mm -hmm. supremacy and, uh, and capitalism and all of these things, right? And so I thought it was very important to speak to our specific challenges when it comes to, you know, buying all the things and keeping all the things. Um, And I love that it's really fostered this conversation in our community because so many Black folks were like, minimalism ain't it, sis. Like, that ain't what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I often tell people too, like, you know, that is that word, again, because it evokes the minute you say that word, it evokes scarcity, it evokes that monochrome aesthetic that we were talking about earlier, right? Like all of these things, it's why I call it the guide to living with less, right? Like just remove the word minimalism from your vocabulary (laughs) if it is something that evokes that sort of negative or visceral reaction that, you know, like the first thing is, oh, I can't be a minimalist. Like ease up, ease up. You don't have to be a minimalist, right? Like live with less. (laughs) Can you be a more mindful consumer? Can you be more intentional with your purchases, right? There's so many other ways to frame it than to, minimalism is just one framework, which I feel has been uh, already just washed out, right? Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) literally and figuratively it is whitewashed. And so like, you may have to find, you know, another sort of term or some terminology that works for you that is really just about you know, living a more, a more mindful and intentional life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I really, <laughs> now that's my favorite page. You, I'm, I appreciate you reading that to us. I really do. I, um, one of the things that you, you open up your book saying, like you dedicate this for the ancestors living with less is now our choice. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by that? I was really touching yeah. by that statement. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's why I have the cotton blossoms on Mm -hmm. the front, right? Um, I think so much of who we are, especially like Black consumerism, when I think about Black consumerism, um, so much of it is, you know, rooted in us being able to get all the things and do all the things that our ancestors could not do. Right. Being our ancestors. Like you literally, like (laughs) I just saw your chest lifted because you're like, right? Like this, and that is a, it is a heavy weight to carry, right? And um, Mm -hmm. I think when you grow up with that mindset or you're surrounded with that mindset, right? Like it, all of that is a contributing factor to us, you know, really as as a community and as a culture, like consumerism is, I mean, we are the largest class of consumers, consumers country, yes, right even though we are billions or millions billions yeah. right like we are the low like on the lower scale of income earners right we're on the lower scale of home ownership we're on the lower scale of every, but like consumerism we're at the top right and so I mm-hmm. think we have to really you know think about that and and I realized for so many people and I, and I know it was for me so much of that was being first gen right? Being first gen. So I'm the first one to graduate from college. I'm the first one to get an advanced degree, right? I'm the first one to earn six figures. I'm the, right. And, and it, you feel sort of this weighted responsibility to do all the things and get all the things that your ancestors, you know, I don't know how you were growing up, but it was like, but your ancestors fought and died for, right? And I'm like, yeah. I don't really think my ancestors fought and died for me to be a Macy's, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right but like you adopt this mindset right or these belief systems and I talk about that on our pages on the black pages as well right um yeah and you share really just a lot of people too yeah yeah because it's, it's such a shared experience right um but getting people to understand that a lot of 
um, you know, the adages and things that we heard growing up are just no longer applicable to us today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I, I know there's, I can't remember what page number, but uh, there is one page that speaks to that, um, that talks about, you know, a very common refrain in the Black community, which is, you know, you got to live for today because tomorrow isn't promised. Eh, so that was from the Jim Crow era very applicable and applicable right like during During that yeah yeah right you literally did not know if you're gonna come home for dinner right but we know now that as a people we're living 60 70 you know the majority you know we have longer lifespans right and so what does that mean um in terms of us if we're living for the day when we're younger and we look up and we're 60 and we have no retirement and we have no savings and we have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we gotta, <laughs> yeah, we have all this debt, like all of these things that trust me is someone, I'm, I mean, I just sent my daughter off to school. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that I can, if she has no loans, I will probably be saddled by student loan debt <laughs> for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> no student loans and I'm able to, you know, pay her tuition. Um, you know, all of these things for me are just so powerful and it's mm-hmm. because of choices. And when you think about it, these are choices that I made in the last five years that have been able to change our family's history and legacy, right? So imagine mm-hmm. like the sooner you start, um, the better. And that's why I share a lot of, you know, my own personal stories because I want people to see like, number one, it's okay. Right. I've started, I I don't even call them mistakes anymore. I'm like, I want you to learn from the decisions that I made. And I want you to make different decisions. Right. Because the, the framing and our language, how we, how we say things, it matters. Right. And so I want people to learn um, from my decisions, from the decisions of our parents and grandparents. Right. And understand that we have an opportunity to really do something differently um, for our own familial legacy Um, for that of our communities, right? Um, That's why that section on forgiveness is in there because when I realized this in my 30s, you know, I had to forgive myself for all the foolishness, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, That I did in my my earlier years, right? Um, But again, we live and we learn and I, you know, I have uh, heard from people who are in their 70s that are like, I love your book and I am letting go. This is part of my retirement, right? And I've heard from people in their 20s, right? And so there's no there's no wrong time um, to start. Um, if you are getting started later, definitely forgive yourself for you know the choices and decisions that you made um, before and just commit to doing something different going forward. Yes. I'm I'm at the I'm at the forgiving stage of the of your process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about language and the power of language, how you don't say mistakes, mm-hmm. but you say decisions. So another yes. thing that I, I read in your book is that you don't like the P word purge. I don't. I mean, I know people say it. Um, and again, you can say whatever you want, folks. I'm not yes. telling you what to say. But <laughs> I mean, I again I think when we think about language and framing, I mean, purging in itself has a very negative connotation, um, you know, associated with dieting. It just has a, it's just negative, right? And you're Mm -hmm. not purging. It's the same, it's the same reason why I don't like to say throwing away. I'm throwing everything away, right? It's like, no, like there are people who can need, use, love that stuff, right? And Mm -hmm. so just being very mindful, I think of language, um, is, is just important with this work, especially as, again, when you think about that forgiveness, um, when you think about acknowledging that, you know, your overconsumption, all of those things are going to evoke a lot of emotions. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if there's language that you can use to sort of curtail that a bit, I, I highly encourage it. Yeah. Yes. I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I'll put that word. Aside. Yeah. I like to use letting like, go. I'm a- I'm not purge. I'm not the purge. I know, right? Yeah. And I, you know, so yeah, I do a lot of, you know, I'm letting go or I'm decluttering um, or I'm making space. Like there's so many other ways that you can frame it that aren't, that aren't going to evoke those negative thoughts and emotions. Right. And purging seems like an extreme activity. It's so extreme. And And then you look at the things differently. You're like, purging that right and yeah. it's like, let me let let me let this go right or let me 
you know, does it spark joy? Like all of those things, it's a, it, a, you look at the item differently, right? Yeah. Like I look at something differently if I'm purging it. I look at something differently if I'm throwing it away. I look at something very differently if I'm letting it go. Yeah. Right. Power or I'm trying to decide if it's right. the power of language, man. Power yeah. of language. So I think you also touched on this before when we were talking about how, like, you know, especially for some Black folks, they feel like minimalism is not their lifestyle. Yeah. And um, in your book, you even talked about like a sneaker collector. So there's a lot of people who mm. like collecting, or if they have like family memorabilia, like I know the cotton. You have a piece of cotton that you yeah. have, right? So how does mm -hmm. like family memorabilia and like people who collect things if they're like a sneakerhead, how does that fit? Or what would you say to people like that who want to maybe hold on to those things or maybe tweak yeah. it? Is there I room for memorabilia collection and affirmation? There is, but I, but I do think it's, you know, again, it goes back to you really thinking about, you know, that framework, that need, use, and love framework, right? So I know a lot of sneakerheads, and they need use and love all their sneakers, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they do. Um, you know, I also, I mean, I can speak to my own experience where I had a lot of designer purses that I did not need use and love, right? I mean, I've loved them. Yeah, I <laughs> most certainly didn't need them, and I most certainly did not use all of them, right? Um, so I think that's an, you know, that framework for me has always been really helpful. Um, when it comes to memorabilia, when it comes to all of those things, is this something that I need, use, and love? And it could be, you know, for memorabilia, if it's something that's on display, mm -hmm. right? So my thing is like, you really don't need, use, and love it if it's in a box in your basement. You might <laughs> love it, but you damn sure don't need it. You're not doing the other thing, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And so, you know, a lot of times people hold on to things because it's comforting to just know it's there. To just know that it's in the basement, to just know it's in the box, to just know it's in the room, right? Um, so really think about why is it that you are truly holding on to this item? And if you need, use, and love it that much, it should be on display, right? I have one piece of pottery um, out of all the millions of pieces of pottery that my daughter made for me <laughs> when she was younger. Um, and I keep it on display, right? And it's very important to me as the first little vase that she ever made for me um but I couldn't keep all the pottery I just yeah. couldn't keep it all yeah. you know what I mean so you really uh -huh. have to you really have to think about that um also think you know when I talk about in the beginning again that psychology of ownership piece and getting to the root causes of your overconsumption why are you a sneakerhead right like do you really mm. like sneakers right like in that story that I share which by the way is actually the story of my ex-husband <laughs> you know who is great we're still good friends um and he allowed me to share his story um and he has over 30 pairs of Jordans and you know when I asked him to like when did this start and he remembered exactly when it started, which is why that first piece is it started in childhood, because so many of us, some of the things that we love and have now are things that we could not have as children, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, his story was that um, the new Jordans came out, his parents got him some knockoffs, he got clowned at school, he remembers telling himself, you know what? when I'm an adult, I'm going to buy me some, I'm going to buy whatever shoe I want, whatever sneaker I want. And that's what we do, right? So many of us, those little commitments and promises that we make to ourselves as children, we are very, very consistent about and making sure, <laughs> yes, that we follow through once we get older, right? Um, and so, you know, we mirror a lot of um, behaviors that we saw growing up, right? Um, so I think like really starting with childhood is a big part for me um, mm -hmm. and to understand that it goes beyond our wardrobes, right? Um, a lot of people who uh, have very full pantries or, you know, are extreme couponers or, right? And, you know, you think about their childhood and if you grew up with scarcity, if you grew up, if, we, if you grew up with food insecurity or scarcity of some sort, the chances of it manifesting in your adult life in some form um, is just very common, right? And you'll hear people say, I know that I'm never gonna be able to eat all this food, but I remember opening the pantry as a child and seeing nothing in there. 
And it just really brings me comfort now to just open the pantry and see it stocked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I, I think people have to really think about why they have some of these obsessions, right? Whether it's sneakers or, you know, why they do certain things, why they hoard certain things. And I think when we think of hoarding, we think of like extreme hoarding on television, but the clinical definition of hoarding, I sound like such a nerd, the clinical (laughs) definition of hoarding, but the clinical definition of hoarding is really holding on to something for future use. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we, we, we do a lot of that too, right? I'm gonna hold on to this because when I lose 10 pounds, I'm gonna hold on to this because when I gain 10 pounds, I'm gonna hold on to this. We hold on for stuff for our children that they don't even want, you know, <laughs> holding on for stuff for children we ain't even had yet. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Why you have to drag us like that? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to drag y'all. But you know, like, it's important to like, really, like, this is when we don't talk about the psychology of why we have all of these things. We just note that we have all of these things or even acknowledge that we have all of, but why? Yeah. So you, you know, we're, we're a history podcast and, you know, we love mm-hmm. nerding. When you're giving us the clinical definition, I love that. We, my uh-huh. listeners, we're, we're all nerds, right? Um, so you have a brief section in kind of in the beginning of your book where you talk about how we've gotten as a society to this overconsumption, right? Us as individuals mm-hmm. have our own journey, um, but also as a society, we have gone from like, we've had these different industrial revolutions that have yeah. led us to this overconsumption. Can you take us through that briefly for all our history nerds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let me actually pull out my book. Yes, I yes, like yes. Go overboard. It's here. on, um, yeah, it's on 70. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was really important for me, I think, to, again, like get people to think about, because everyone's like, I just don't know how I ended up here. And I'm like, no one just ends up here, right? Like it is, yeah. it is a collection <laughs> yeah. of, you know, challenges, history, things, all of this. that External and internal influences. For sure, that plays a role, right? And so, you know, pre-industrial revolution, you know, that's when, you know, the world is more agricultural. Most of our goods and clothing. Yeah, everything is like- Hunting and gathering. (laughs) I mean, it's not purchased. I'm sorry. It's it's more um, homemade and mostly homemade locally than it is, um, you know, purchased. Like no one purchase clothing unless like you are like purchasing system. it from your friend right yeah <laughs> um I think what's also so important during the pre-industrial revolution is that uh transportation was limited right so mm-hmm. like you know how now we can just like oh, I'm gonna get my car and go to the mall like people either yeah, I'm gonna go to the foot. outlet <laughs> yeah like it didn't it did not go down like that people either traveled by foot or by you know horse and mule um, and so no one was really traveling by foot to go to go shopping, right? Um, and it wasn't until um, we had some more of the technologies uh, to do some of the agricultural work that people used to do um, that people start like, you know, like losing their land and all of that sort of thing and leaving their rural villages to go work in cities that were more, um, you know, part of the first industrial revolution. So that first industrial revolution, that's when we have coal. Um, there's all these new inventions that help with travel, right? Like mm-hmm. the steamboat, um, you know, so you have people like transporting goods now by waterway. Um, and then that's also when we have the railroad. And that for many years was the primary way to ship goods across the United States, right? Yeah. Um this is also during that first industrial revolution, which I should also, I'm not giving the years, that's like 1750 to 1850 for mm-hmm. the first industrial revolution. That's when the sewing machine was invented. Ooh. Okay. Um, mechanical Mass production. Yes. yes, right. And so you see this boom in factory work when it comes to textiles, right? Um, and again, now because you have more people working in factories, now they have income to buy these textiles, right? So here's like this first little beginning of, you know, consumerism, consumerism yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so then the second industrial revolution, that's 1850 to like 1970. Um, that's when we have like oil, gas, electricity, right? All of these things really start increasing manufacturing production and also um, their efficiency, right? Because yeah. when it was just cold, things were a little slow. <laughs> yes. Um, 
also what you have during the uh, uh, second industrial revolution is you have airplanes and automobiles, right? This, they mm-hmm. also emerged during this era. And so now manufacturers are able to like really ship larger quantities of goods. They're not relying just solely on, on railroads or yeah. steamboats. Yeah, right. Um, I think what's also so important about um, the second industrial revolution is the Great Depression. Right. Ooh. So I talk about that a little bit more in the book. I know we're short on time, so I won't go yeah. into it. But, <laughs> um, you know, the Great Depression, this is where we start to see the beginning of a lot of generational traumas, such as food scarcity, mm-hmm. housing insecurity, all of these things. And it's important to note that, you know, that era caused a lot of survivors and their descendants, right, to either become extreme hoarders or extreme savers, right? Mm. So we think about ourselves like, these are our grandparents. This is not no, like not that, <laughs> not far like that long ago, right? <laughs> and so, you know, how your grandparents raised your parents has an impact on how on you, you are. Yes, on who you are, right? Um, and then I think, you know, the other important part of the second industrial revolution is, you know, post Great Depression, we have all of these new forms of like personal communication. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, so we get our Radio. radios and televisions. Right. Marketing and So here we go. Targeted, repetitious marketing, <laughs> targeted <laughs> marketing starts. Right. Um, which I think is, you know, um, you know, just so vital. There's a folder for the culture page that I have regarding the second industrial revolution. Um, because when it comes to our community, this is when we start to see a lot of like racialized violence against blacks accelerate Mm. because it's after the abolition of slavery right and um one of the things that i talk about is how this you know destroyed a lot of significant sources of generational wealth right and Mm -hmm. we talk about tulsa a lot i know i talk about it in the book um but there were other very wealthy black communities uh in america former black settlement towns um that were destroyed and and um you know endured a lot of racialized violence which in turn resulted in a lot of loss of generational wealth, you know, again, for our parents. Yeah, this is not, we're not that far removed. Yeah, not our grandparents, not our great grandparents. Yeah, right, our parents, right? Um, And then third industrial revolution, we have 1969 to 2000. Wild to think, I know, like, I was born during the third industrial revolution. Um, this is where we see a lot of advances in manufacturing technology. Um, you know, we, this is when the internet comes about, you know. So Online shopping. Yeah, so now consumers have direct access um, mm-hmm. to businesses with e-commerce, e-commerce and this sort of enhances this uh, globalization Mm -hmm. of consumerism right so now I don't have to just buy at the mall or I don't have to just buy you know in a neighboring town like I can buy something in another state or on the other side of the world right yeah Um, I have an exclusive bag from yeah right (laughs) so even though we saw a little bit of the economic downturn during the great recession right uh it was just like a momentary pause I would say in consumerism right Mm -hmm. um and then fourth industrial revolution, which is where we are now, Today, is 2000 yeah. to present. Um, I think we're just starting. We're, I feel like we're just starting to see where this can go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you do a lot of research about the culture of consumerism in the fourth industrial revolution, you get to hear a lot of um, talk about how, you know, robots <laughs> are going to <laughs> only enhance um this culture of consumerism that we have now we see a lot of you know you can it used to be like oh my goodness I can get something in three days then it was oh my goodness I can get something in in two days oh my I can I can order something on Amazon and get it right now exactly in like a few hours right and so yeah we'll still have to see you know what the uh what the fourth industrial revolution holds for us but I loved our conversation today. This was so wonderful. And yeah. I am just so grateful and thankful for you for having me as a guest. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask you our last signature question because you already have a book. But if you had an opportunity to write uh-huh. a chapter in a book about Afro-minimalism, so this mm-hmm. might be easy for you because you already got a book. Mm-hmm. But if you had an opportunity to write a chapter on Afro-minimalism, what would you call it and why? 
the Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less <laughs> chapter. <laughs> the chapter. <laughs> the chapter. Like, this is easy. It's the easy one. Yes. Well, thank you so much for giving us your yes. time today and giving us all the tips to get started and to think about this journey through your book and through this conversation. And yeah. And so that is the conclusion of season three, episode two on the history of minimalism, packing light with Afro minimalist, Christine Platt. So we covered, uncovered a lot. We really got to trace how this art form became a lifestyle that people are applying today. And in particularly from our conversation with Kristen, which I love, love, love. She dropped so many jewels. She really came for us collectors out there and really made us dig deep about the psychology behind why we have so many things. But I really enjoyed her conversation because she really opened up the conversation to talking about how consumption and clutter and having a lot of things affect people of color and particularly black people a little bit differently. And I really, really appreciated that. And I wanted to leave you with a quick gem that's in Christine's book about how to begin this process of decluttering and living with less. So if you're interested in it, I would suggest purchasing her book. It's a really fun read and you know we like to support black authors, but also in the end of her book, when she starts getting into how to actually declutter, she has a really particular practice that allows you to kind of look at new purchases or old things and assess whether or not you need to keep it. So in order to keep an item or to purchase an item, it has to fit these three categories. It has to be something that you need. It has to be something that you use and it has to be something that you love and it has to fit all three categories in order for you to keep it or purchase it and so I thought that was really interesting and I actually did a mini decluttering before this episode a couple months ago in the summer and I really applied these principles and it was super hard to look at a shirt and be like does it fit my needs will I use it have I used it (laughs) and do I love it and you know when you start asking those questions you'll be surprised at what you can let go a little bit more easily. So today's episode was a little bit longer than usual because we had a really, really dope guest and we had a lot of stuff to cover. So I appreciate you for hanging on this long. And as usual, follow us all over the interwebs. If you really enjoyed this episode, let me know. Slide into my DMs. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Share this episode. And as you know, on Monday on That Wasn't In My Textbook and Toya from Harlem Instagram, there will be a quiz, a non-quiz quiz, because we don't do grades over here to kind of reinforce the things that we talked about and continue this conversation on minimalism and Afro-minimalism. So thank you again for listening. Come back next Friday, November 19th for a new juicy episode. It will be a solo dolo episode with Jess Moi and it will be shorter. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power.